And welcome to the Human Side of Healthcare, Steve Love along with Thomas Miller. And today we're going to talk about a subject that many of our listeners may be familiar with, but we're going to go in depth and talk a little bit about epilepsy. We've got Dr. Anita Bonsali with us today. She is a neurosurgeon, Texas Health Harris Methodist Hospital, Fort Worth. She is going to tell us a little bit about this, and we're going to peel back the onion. So let me first ask you, how is epilepsy in your eyes defined, and how does it really affect the body? So I think it's helpful to start with a definition of what is a seizure, because that is necessary to understanding what epilepsy is. So seizures are the result of abnormal electrical activity in the brain, and This abnormal activity can cause strange sensations in the body, uncontrolled movements, including convulsions, a change in the level of consciousness, or unusual emotional outbursts, or unusual patterns of behavior. They don't always look like someone dramatically passing out, frothing at the mouth, or convulsing. Uh, People can appear to be awake. Seizures can be mimicked by other medical conditions, including heart arrhythmias, syncope, or passing out. Um, and psychogenic non-epileptic seizures. In addition, seizures can also be provoked by high fevers, and this is really common in children, um, or head injury. And in certain drug withdrawal syndromes, those can also cause seizures. So now a diagnosis of epilepsy requires at least two seizures, 24 hours apart, that are not provoked by any of the things I just said. So epilepsy is a diagnosis that indicates that the brain is susceptible to recurrent unprovoked seizures. You know, that uh, is interesting. I had a friend in high school that was in an automobile accident and had a head injury. So I know what you're saying uh, when you went through that definition. So if you looked at the United States, how many people would you say have epilepsy? That number is about 1% in the human population in general. So in the United States, that translates to about 3 million people diagnosed with epilepsy. So on an annual basis, how many new people would you say are diagnosed each year? So the incidence of epilepsy is about, on average, probably 50 in 100,000 people diagnosed per year. The numbers can range as low as 35 up to 71,000, but the average tends to be about 50. When, when we think in terms of epilepsy and we think in terms of the forms of treatment, for our listeners who may not be as familiar with epilepsy and some of the treatment, would you consider some epilepsy is curable or would you say it's predominantly a chronic condition? That is such an interesting question because I think for a long time it's been considered a chronic condition that has had to be managed long-term with medications. Sometimes those medications can be very effective in keeping seizures at bay. That's kind of the the best possible outcome that you can get. For other patients, um, that's not always the case, and sometimes the best you can do is to try to minimize the frequency or the severity of seizures without being able to eradicate them entirely. From the perspective of a neurosurgeon who specializes in this area, we know from neurology data that about one-third of patients have refractory epilepsy, meaning that they have had a trial of two or more medications at appropriate doses for an appropriate length of time, and they still have very poor seizure control. 
And some of those patients do meet criteria to be evaluated by a neurosurgeon depending on the results of their workup. So that's primarily the population that I work with. Those patients have to be referred by an epileptologist who has done you know, a very thorough workup and has established that they're a reasonable candidate to even discuss surgery. But many of those patients can achieve cure with surgery. So I, to kind of go back to your original question, I think there is a population of people who can achieve cure from epilepsy without needing long-term medications. You know, that's, uh, that's really good to know because I know, as, as you indicated, I'm an old guy. I remember most people diagnosed with epilepsy, say, when I was younger, you thought of it more as a chronic condition. As you look at the general population and as you look at patients that you treat, is there any way to say, who would be more at risk for epilepsy? So I think there are a couple of risk factors that we've identified. I will start by saying that, unfortunately, about 70% of patients diagnosed with epilepsy don't always have an underlying cause that can clearly be delineated, which makes it difficult to talk about prognosis or treatment options and things like that. Um, But in terms of the known risk factors, the The most common ones are head trauma, stroke, brain tumors, and uh, infections of the brain, such as meningitis. Um, Other causes can be certain drug or medication effects, genetic syndromes, congenital malformations of the brain, and metabolic disturbances. But that still leaves a really large portion of patients with epilepsy who we unfortunately can't give them a reason for why they have it. If you're an individual a parent, or maybe a child, and you're really caring for someone that has epilepsy, are there any actions or advice you would say to keep in mind as they support their loved one? So I think if you are the family member of someone who has epilepsy, I think there are a couple things to keep in mind. One, it's not the kind of condition that's necessarily obvious from the get-go, but it can have really profound effects on how people are able to live their lives. For example, if you have a diagnosis of epilepsy, chances are good that you're not able to drive. If you don't have a sufficient amount of control over your seizures, you can't drive. And if you think about what that means in terms of how that limits people's mobility, how they can take care of things for themselves, I mean, that's a a really big factor. I think the other thing that may or may not be obvious is that you know, a condition like this where we have these episodes of uncontrolled movements or emotions or loss of consciousness, I think there's a pretty strong psychological component that comes with it, which, you know, I think is after you've met a few patients and they've kind of described what it's like to you, you can understand why there is a, often a comorbidity of, you know, anxiety or depression that comes with having epilepsy. I think in terms of what, you know, friends or family can provide, I think it can be as simple as accompanying them to their doctor's appointments. Not only does it provide a very tangible form of support, it always helps to have another set of ears listening to what the doctor is saying and and, and asking questions that maybe the patient may not have thought to ask. Um, I find that, at least in, you know, in my experience, having another person there who can listen and also obviously cares very deeply for the patient, that can have a pretty large effect on their outcome. You know, I think that's excellent advice, and not only for epilepsy, but also for other conditions. Absolutely. You know, as we look at Texas Health Harris Methodist Fort Worth's epilepsy 
program, diagnostic, treatment, support. What would you say is really being done to help Tarrant County and beyond? Because we cover North Texas. So I was hired specifically to provide surgical consultation and surgical options to patients with epilepsy who had been through the workup and were thought to be good surgical candidates. I work pretty closely with a team of neurologists, um, neuropsychologists, uh, nurses and support staff, and we collectively have created the Texas Health Fort Worth Center for Epilepsy, which is based out of Harris Methodist. Uh, We are currently in the process of gaining our NAEC, which stands for the National Association of Epilepsy Centers, Level 3 accreditation, which allows us to become a referral center for patients who have epilepsy who need further workup than what's available in their nearby community hospitals. Of course, our next goal would be to achieve level four status, and that's when we become recognized as a center where the entire gamut of um, epilepsy treatments, including all kinds of uh, surgical options, uh, are widely available to patients in the outlying areas. I would say right now that we really are the focal point for a lot of patients with epilepsy who have been either newly diagnosed or who need to have more of a workup to see if there's a better medical option or even a surgical option for the Tarrant County area. You know, this is uh, called the human side of healthcare, And what you've described in the people that you serve and treat really are people that need your help. And epilepsy, it may not affect as many people as one may think. I think it's approximately one in 26 people may have epilepsy in their lifetime, but this is important for the listeners. And this is another great example of how our hospitals, our physicians are giving back to the community, and we represent the human side of healthcare. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Dr. Bonsali, Thomas Miller. Got So the thing that's I would love to understand the distinction between seizure and epilepsy. I would think of it this way. A seizure is a discrete episode of uncontrolled brain activity that can lead to changes in levels of consciousness, abnormal movements, uh, emotional outbursts, and actually more manifestations than many people might, might realize. Epilepsy is a term that describes patients' brain susceptibility to having seizures. So if you have been given a diagnosis of epilepsy, what that indicates is that you are prone to having unprovoked recurrent seizures. Ah, okay. So epilepsy is not a specific thing. It's a propensity of, I guess, by clarity, right? I would say that using epilepsy as a diagnosis is very, very broad because you can have epilepsy for a lot of different reasons and it can manifest in different ways and the treatments can be very different. You mentioned 1% of the population, or Steve, like you said, 1 out of 25 or so, right? 1 out of 26. 1 out of 26. So you might not know, but you know somebody who does, right? Or a family who is affected. You know, I mean, it's like one one step of removal. So this is a big deal. What kind of surgeries do you do? So the gold standard and the only option that was available for a really long time was surgical resection. So if you can pinpoint the area of the brain where the seizure originates 
and it's in a part of the brain that may not be responsible for other critical functions like speech or vision or movement, you can basically cut that part of the brain out. You can disconnect that part of the brain to stop it from being the source of seizures. And depending on where that is in the brain, you can have different different outcomes in the sense of success rates. So for example, the most common type of adult onset epilepsy is something called temporal lobe epilepsy, meaning it the onset takes place in the medial part of the temporal lobe involving structures known as the amygdala and the hippocampus. And so those patients often respond very well to surgical resection as long as those parts of the brain can be demonstrated not to control critical functions like language or memory. I would say with surgical resection in those cases, you can achieve 75 to 80% cure, meaning seizure freedom, at least as far out as two years. And that's usually when the data stops getting collected. So that's been the only option that's been available for a long time. Um, In recent years, with the advent of a lot of new technology and new devices under the heading of neuromodulation, there are more options available for patients who may have more than one area where seizures start, or if the seizures start in a part of the brain where you cannot resect it without causing a lot of neurological problems. Um, So technologies like deep brain stimulation, um, responsive neurostimulation, Uh, vagal nerve stimulation. A lot of these devices can be implanted with the understanding that you might not be quote-unquote curing the epilepsy syndrome because you're not actually getting rid of the source, but you're, you're exploiting the brain's electrical activity with these devices to try to detect and terminate seizure activity before it starts. Is that what the cardiologist would call an ablation? Is that the equivalent? No, but To your point, there actually is another kind of surgery that we also have access to now, which is laser ablation, the use of a laser inserted into brain tissue to use basically heat energy to destroy the part of the brain where seizures are coming from. Again, that modality is only a great option if you can prove there's one spot in the brain and it's not controlling something critical. But that's also what many people call a minimally invasive option as opposed to a conventional open surgery. Are there a lot of breakthroughs in technology in your space of medicine now? Yes, that's actually one of the reasons that I chose to specialize in functional neurosurgery because it's neurosurgery as a whole is a young, constantly evolving field. But I think functional neurosurgery, which deals specifically with disorders like epilepsy, uh, Parkinson's, movement disorders, pain syndromes, that is a very active field in terms of research and development. I think medicine as a whole is rewarding But for me in particular, what I like about this subspecialty is that, you know, instead of focusing on treating a tumor or treating someone with a bad back, um, the focus of functional neurosurgery really is the quality of life of the patient. And what that means is we often have to manipulate things like electrical circuitry in the brain in order to maybe not solve a problem, but find a workaround to help people live better lives. So that really, that philosophy really appeals to me. And the support you get from your organization, Texas Health Harris Methodist, must be incredible, it sounds like. Yeah, I would say so. Certainly my field is, um, because it's constantly changing, the way that my surgeries were done 20 years ago is different than the way that I do them. So being at an institution where I can get the staff I need, the equipment I need, to set up the referral patterns that I need is is great. You know, as, as you were answering uh, questions earlier, I couldn't help but think, and, and I'm sure 
this is something that you probably can't treat today, but hopefully in the future. I have a good friend, and he had a robust two-year-old grandson who got very ill, was rushed to the hospital, severe meningitis. And after living, which they were thankful that the child could live, had just multiple seizures, multiple seizures. And they've gone through a lot, a lot of rehabilitation, et cetera. I hope one day in the future, maybe there can be surgery that could help in a situation like that as well. So that is a really, unfortunately, common cause for epilepsy in children. It's true that to date, while there are surgeries or modalities that can be used in a palliative capacity, meaning that we acknowledge that we cannot cure problem, we can try to reduce the harm that it causes. But yeah, my absolute hope is that in the future, we can find a way to definitively treat all different kinds of epilepsy without necessarily needing lifelong medication or even an implanted device if there was some way to some some way to treat epilepsy without necessarily those kinds of restrictions i mean that would be amazing